0: During lockdown, I've been recording a series of conversations with a range of people discussing their journeys and life in 2020. The discussions have formed my new podcast series, Pearl Conversations. Joining me for this week's episode is journalist and former number 10 director of communications, Alistair Campbell. We caught up at the start of lockdown to discuss how the British government had reacted to the COVID-19 pandemic the future of the Labour Party, the Lions Tour of New Zealand in 2005, and Alistair's mental health advocacy work. Alistair, thank you very much for joining us. It's an absolute honour to share this conversation with you again. My pleasure. (laughs) So, to kick things off, um, to get our conversation juices flowing, I want to ask you if you give me a one-word response to the following names.
1: Ready? Yeah.
0: Jeremy Corbyn.
1: Lost. Loser.
0: (laughs) Vladimir Putin.
1: I'm hovering between strong and evil. (laughs) <laughs> he's somewhere in the middle
0: <laughs> Tony Blair uh,
1: good guy oh that's two words but <laughs> um, Tony, Blair, Tony
0: Blair Tony Blair winner I'm going to call him a winner nice Dominic Cummings overblown <laughs> again two words but never no, no, mind oh okay I stand corrected um, David David Cameron
1: mistake Boris Johnson I want to swear (laughs) you (laughs) can't I'm not going to but I'm not going to but I kind of want to square (laughs) he's deeply untrustworthy
0: Uh, Angela Merkel Um,
1: leader serious 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 um, Gordon Brown. Um, that's a good one. Gordon Brown, first thing that pops into my head, actually, first thing I pops into my head with Gordon is relentless.
0: Yeah,
1: that's a good word. Got a characteristic to have.
0: And just going back a little bit on Angela Merkel, I get the impression that you actually have a lot of respect for, for Angela An- Angela Merkel.
1: I do have a lot of respect for her because I think she's, I think Germany's in some ways an easier country to govern. How so? Because I think as it emerged from the war, I think that the, the, the people became, uh, I mean, what we see in kind of, I would define as a modern German person, I think it was very much driven by that sense of, escaping that past and, and together trying to create something new. And I think, I think it's pretty extraordinary what they've done. And I think she's always been somebody who as you know, because the, if you think the whole thing of Nazism was built on the idea of the strong, that's me, I think, this, if it was built on the idea of the strong leader. Um, and she just resists that all the time. Even now during the coronavirus, her big thing is keeping the, the lender, the regional governments, properly involved in the management of the crisis. So I think she's a leader, but she has characteristics that you wouldn't necessarily associate with those people that we normally define as strong leaders. As in charismatic, as in. Um... As in, well, as in, you know, Trump, uh, Johnson, the whole populist thing, or as in and sort of Clinton and Tony, the, you know, as you say, the kind of energetic, yeah, charismatic, yeah. good with words, Obama. Great orator. Angela Merkel's not a great orator, yeah, far from it. But I think she's, and I also think she's, look, she's tough, not to be messed with. I mean, she, you know, she basically shafted her mentor, holmut Cole. She does what it needs to do, You need to do to kind of get to where you want to get to. But once she was there, I think she's always been driven by a real consensus, profound sense of duty.
0: One, one of the reasons why I like her is because she, she seems like a serious politician. She's, she's not like all the bells and all the whistles, yeah. and you probably, you probably probably wouldn't pay to, to watch her or listen to her speak in an after-dinner after speak because right? it won't be that galvanizing, but it will probably be interesting. And even though she's not terribly exciting, she seems very effective.
1: That's absolutely right. And she, she's, um, she, knows, she knows that's not her strength. Uh, she, she can watch a great orator like Obama and she can be, you know, she can share the admiration that you and I would have for his amazing oratory. But she'll also be thinking, yeah, okay, I can't do that. There's a lot of things I can do better than other politicians do. Them. Yeah. And you said the word serious. That was the word I thought of really when I, you know, I was torn in legal or serious with her she's a really serious person um, and she takes government seriously she takes politics seriously and I'm afraid at the moment I think we just don't have that many serious politicians yeah. Trump is awful I think Johnson is not a serious person <laughs>
0: If I was to say the words OST to what, what,
1: what you, what would you mean by that? <laughs> uh, well, it's Norwegian for cheese. But the only reason I know that is when I said to uh, an audience in Norway, the three most important letters in the alphabet are OST, and they all laughed because I didn't realise it meant cheese. <laughs> it means, as you've obviously read my book on winning, called Winners and How They Succeed, it means Objective Strategy Tactics. And you like I've uh, you're,
0: you're you're right. I have read. I haven't finished it, but I've read I've read, read a few chapters so far. And um, I think in in your book you highlight the importance of the importance of strategy to running a successful organization, running a successful team, whether it's in business, politics, or or just anywhere, any organization in, in, in life. And you were pretty clear on what the objective, the strategy, and the tactics were, for, for New Labour back in the day, way back when. Um, um, but you you mentioned early on in the book how a lot of people make make the mistake between strategy and tactics. Mm. Could you elaborate on that?
1: Well, I think I think it's just one of those words that people use to say you know, our strategy is this. And then you listen to this, so that's not really a strategy. I'll give you an example at the moment, right? You probably would hear government ministers saying, but the strategy is very clear. Stay home, protect the health service, save lives. That's not a strategy, it's a message. The The strategy, now, you could they could say, and by the way, I think it's a very effective message, and they've used it effectively, but I think the broader strategy, you know, the objective at the moment, Is to defeat the virus, okay, with minimum damage, loss of life, and minimum damage to the economy. That's what they're trying to do, and within that, you need a very, very clear message, and that is their message. But I'm not convinced that that's their necessarily their strategy, because at some point, that message is going to have to change. Yeah. So I would argue that, for example, a strategy. Interestingly, in the rugby context. Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, who I think has been brilliant through this. And okay, yeah. people, people, whenever I say that, people say, yeah, but New Zealand's smaller and it's got fewer people. Well, that's true, but it's a country the same as any other country. Yeah. And it's been faced with the virus the same as any other country. And she said, on April the 5th or the 7th, I think it was, <clears throat> she said, this is a brilliant piece of strategic communication. She said, we only have 102 cases, but so did Italy once yeah okay she said if we're going to defeat this we're going to go early go hard yeah and that to me encapsulates a strategy because she's basically saying we're going to hit this thing as hard as we can and do whatever it takes now our government has said repeatedly we're going to do whatever it takes but they haven't done whatever it takes slow into the lockdown haven't, didn't handle the PPE issue well, haven't done the testing in the way that they should have done, haven't really done with business whatever it takes. It was a slogan, not a strategy. So what she said, go early, go hard, it was a slogan, but it was also a strategy.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, that's, that's,
0: that's, that's a good point. Um, for, many, for many reasons, as you said, New Zealand is, is probably a slightly easier country to manage especially because like, New Zealand is so far apart. Um, even talking about New Zealand, let's, let's, let's jump a <laughs> little bit. Um, do you want to tell me about your New Zealand 2005 experience? What, what was that like for you? You mean when I was,
1: when I was a British and Irish lion? <laughs> yes, when you were yeah, a British Irish lion. <laughs> I, I almost wore the gear today. <laughs> One of the things that used to drive the journalists absolutely crazy When I used to walk around in a lion's tracksuit, but that's because everybody did, right? Everybody (laughs) on the the management did, we all wore them. Um, I really enjoyed it, I really did enjoy it, but you know, it was a failure in on lots of levels. But the what you know, which the book, the winner's book, is essentially about you know whether the parallels of sport and business, yeah. The thing about your game is ultimately. It literally all depends on the result. So, if. How is that different? How is that different from your game? Because, well, give you a classic example Jeremy Corbyn lost the election and stayed in. We won the argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're never going to come off the pitch and say, oh, well, we lost, but we won the argument. (laughs) True. You're going to say, shit, we lost.
0: Yeah.
1: So, I think that. And so, the fact, the point I'm making is that if the Lions had won that series, or frankly, even won one of the tests, it would have been seen as a better tour. And therefore, my role within it would not be as controversial as it became. My role became controversial because it was an odd thing to do for Clive Woodward to ask me to go, because of my background and, I guess, you know, and all that stuff. Um, But I, I really enjoyed it. I actually do think that if the media had engaged with my being there in a positive way, they could have got a lot out of it as well. Mm -hmm. Because what was interesting, the background to it was Clive Woodward. The the press visited him when he got the job in the Lions and said, listen, the last two of the media operation was a complete shambles. You've got to get somebody who knows how to do it. He asked me to do it. I thought it would be interesting. You know, I love sport. I've always loved sport. I'm basically a frustrated sportsman and I just thought it'd be nice, interesting for the first time really to be, you know, I know lots of managers, I know lots of players, I know lots of kind of big names in sport, but actually to be on the inside, I've never done that before. So I thought it'd be interesting. I thought I could give something to it, which I believe I did. I mean, I think the fact that I've stayed in touch with, you know, probably between half a dozen and a dozen of the players. Who, who have you kept in touch with? Kept in touch, I'd say in, in, in order in a way. Donna Crowe Callaghan, quite mm. a lot. Paul O'Connell a lot. Uh, Dennis Hickey and Shane Organ. Funny enough, the Irish more than the English. <laughs> um, Brian O'Driscoll. Uh, Gareth Thomas a lot. If I saw him a couple of weeks ago. So uh, Martin Williams, Shane Williams. You know, I kept, and Clive himself.
0: You've left out Richard Hill, MBE. He'll be very upset
1: about that. Well, I did that deliberately because I, I didn't. <laughs> Richard Hill, MBE, he was, he, was, uh, he was one of the best, without a doubt. He's the reason I know you.
0: He is indeed.
1: Um, God bless uh, us all. No, I think he's great, Richard. I think he was. And that, the other thing was interesting from my perspective was to see somebody like him who got very badly injured, not for the first time in his life, got very badly, badly injured early on in the tour. And I think had the option, if he wanted to, to go home. Uh, but he wanted to stay around because he thought he had something to give. Yeah. As a senior player who could still. <clears throat> and to be fair, he did have a lot to give. He was um so I think getting to know people like him was 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 great. So, and it was very interesting. I mean, the, you know, I got the the most controversial bit in a way was when Clive, I think, was a bit he was getting a bit desperate. He was, he was sort of feeling that. He got to the feeling that people weren't listening, the players weren't listening to him in the way that he wanted them to. Mm. Um, and I just remember I made a passing comment to him um, after the first test. And I'd been up, we'd been up all night. Danny grewcock got cited for a sort of Danny Grucock type
0: incident,
1: <laughs> <clears throat> And we'd been up all night dealing with that. And then I went down to the bar just to see what was going on. And there were quite a lot of the players still around. This is after getting pretty well battered in the first, te- first yeah. test. And Brian O'Driscoll being put out of the game. And, yeah. And I just said to, um, to Clive the next morning, I said, I thought it was a bit weird last night. I said, you know, I could be completely wrong about this, but I didn't get the feeling they were in any sort of pain. Um, and I was imagining things that I felt in political world And this is what I said to him was when like, you know, I I know if I'm in the middle of an election campaign, and this is like the equivalent of an election campaign for you. Yeah. If I'm in the middle of an election campaign, there's some point where I get this visceral feeling in my gut that we're going to lose. The fear. And and it makes me kind of just not sleep a few nights and panic and do, and then I do what I need to do. Yeah. And I said, I just didn't get any sense of that.
0: Yeah, I can resonate with that. I feel, I feel as if I play my best rugby when I have when I have at least an acknowledgement that if I don't play well, that this team's going to beat me. So I think I have to have like a huge amount of respect for the team. And um, I don't know if fear is the right word, but like it's definitely an acknowledgement that like if if I don't bring it, if I if if the team doesn't bring it, then this is this is not going to end too well for us. And I think what
1: was what was was interesting is Clive immediately leapt on it and he said I want you to tell the players that and so I, I thought about that and I thought because mm. when I you know I knew these guys a bit but I didn't know them well yeah and so, so what I did was, and, I, and I'd, I'd said to him these things about you know if you talk to people like you know in the special forces and, and I don't know that you would taken all the teams down to, to train with the marines and all that stuff but I think that that feeling that you kind of, your life depends on this. Now I know that sport in the end is not like that. It isn't life or death, but I think that the best, and I got this out of the winner's book. I think a lot of them that you talk to it is, it is life or death. It does feel like if I don't do this, I'm going to give absolutely everything to get this. And I said, I didn't get that feeling for those guys who at two in the morning, were down in the bar chatting away with the fans. And I said, I've just got to think that, you know, <clears throat> I feel if that was me <clears> on <throat> the day after we lost an election, say, and it was, was of a mistake I'd made, I'd have gone to bed. How, gone
0: did they respond, how did they respond to that when you told them?
1: It was very, very mixed. And funny enough, I think the ones that I've stayed close to are the ones who were maybe less offended. I know, for example, that I know Ben Kaye was offended because he wrote about it in his book. Um, Martin Corrie was offended. And to be fair to him, he called me out on it later. He came and says, Look, I, re- I really didn't appreciate hearing that. And, um, and I'm, I've got much more respect for that than yeah. you know, somebody waiting a few years to get a few bob out of the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> so. Got <it's> spied. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, the thing is that it was very, very mixed. Stephen Jones, who's one of the nicest blokes I've ever met, he came up to me afterwards and he said, That needed to be said, and you were the right person to say it because you're not in this world. You're out of a different world, and you bring in a different perspective. Um, Gareth Jenkins, the coach, said the same. I could tell, though, as even as I was speaking, I could tell a lot of them really didn't like it. I remember Brian O'Driscoll. I just just caught his eye, and I like—I really like Brian O'Driscoll. He's a great guy, and I I just detected a little shake of the head. And he wasn't saying—he was kind of saying, you know, don't go too far. And not in a nasty, threatening way, but I just felt he was saying, he was kind of warning me. It's, it's, it's interesting. But Clive, Clive was, I really like Clive and he's a very interesting, quirky character. I'd actually rehearse what I was going to say um, because I think that I wanted to get it right. So I'd, I'd, I didn't have no, I think I might have had some notes, but and I said, Clive, I'm going to say this, and I'd say this and i would say this. And he was absolutely got to do it. They've got to hear it. They're not listening to me wanted to get a bit of fear it's um
0: like it's, as as an athlete like or as a professional sportsman like someone can like criticize your like skill level and you can probably like get over that but what hurts more is when someone like calls you out on like like either caring or or like lack of effort, they're the ones that like really dig deep. So, to be honest, it doesn't surprise me um, that they that some people would have responded negative. Negatively yeah, yeah, yeah. to That, but at the same time, like I'm sure like there's a lot of like class class athletes in that in that room. That like the 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 best of them or the the guys who who are serious about their business would would took it on board and tried to. Try to go from it, but talking about um the Irish guys, I hear you have a good Donica O'Callaghan story.
1: I have a lot of good donica <laughs> <laughs> he's he is amazing, he's a funny guy, he's a funny, funny guy. Uh, would you want me stories from then or stories from now? I can give you both,
0: uh, well, you, you can go from 2005, um, or if you have a better one, you, your well,
1: choice. I, think, I think the funniest one was when um. He, we had this DVD team that was doing a kind of, you know, the official video of the, of the tour. And Donica stole the camera of whoever the camera got, had the camera, he stole the camera. And he came into the gents' toilet in Auckland, in the hotel in Auckland, to film me having a pee. <laughs> um, and I'm standing there and I said, for Christ sake Donica, what are you doing? And he goes, we're about to discover if Alastair Campbell, Tony Blair's spin doctor, washes his hands after he's had a piss. <laughs> so I finished, I wash my hands, and then I said, right, you happy now? He says, I have one more question. Does Tony Blair wash his hands after he's had a piss? <laughs> I said, yes, he does, Dorak. He says, no, he does not, because I know that was your fucking job. <laughs> <laughs> every time, every time I'm on a big TV thing in Ireland, every time without fail I will get a message 10 minutes before I go on <laughs> and it usually says like when I did the Late Late show just about to, just in the green room just wait to go on and I get this message and says Late Late it's the most important programme in Ireland don't fuck it up like <laughs> you fuck <it> up like <laughs> before. fair enough I don't know him but for what, a he's guy?
0: a very funny guy So I'm gonna go back a little bit. So, object, objective, strategy, tactics. So you came in. When did you you became Tony Blair's director of communications in '94? Yeah, yeah. That was the year I was born. Um, right. <laughs> and you, in in many ways, I think you can draw some parallels to like nineteen ninety four and two thousand and twenty in terms of there's been a long period of conservative government. Um Labour are fairly well have been well beaten in previous elections and um, probably ninety four was a, a bit sooner to the next election, but in in you, you never really know what the political landscape's gonna be. So it's unlikely that we're gonna have one in three years but this weirder things have happened. So the, the point I'm trying to make is that um, you can draw a lot of parallels from Labour 1994 in opposition to 2020 Labour in opposition. If you were Director of Communications for Keir Starmer, what would your OST be for that, for him?
1: I think the objective, in, if you're the main party of opposition, the objective always has to be to win the next election. Um, And I think his strategy, I mean, he's he's come in at a very difficult time. Yeah. Um, If you think about it, normally, if this was normal times, his arrival as Labour leader would have been like a massive event in our politics and in our culture. It was was page 25
0: news. Yeah, it was
1: kind of, you know, and meanwhile, we've got a new Labour leader. Um, Now, I think for him, I think it's interesting when you were talking about Angela Merkel, I thought about Keir. I think his approach should be one of differentiation with the government, and that may sound obvious, right? The reason it's not obvious is because too many Labour leaders have differentiated themselves according to other Labour leaders, <clears throat> and um, so, for example, you know, Gordon did it with Tony a bit. Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn did it with previous Labour leaders, and there'll be a, there'll be a uh, a danger, I think, that Keir tries to... Because he's, he's genuinely a genuinely consensual figure, yeah. wants to bring the different wings of the Labour Party together. But I think if he sort of projects himself as differentiation, sort of not Corbyn, not Blair, to put it very crudely, something in the middle, I don't think that works. I think there's got to be um, a strategy rooted in the really big challenges facing the world. Yeah, In other words, a kind of policy-focused... Um, Strategy, which I think is, in a funny sort of way, Ed Miliband, this is what he was trying to do, but it never quite, never quite worked. But essentially, to say that, you know, politics is about big things, not little things, and make his focus, particularly in the post-COVID environment, the really big things: uh, health inequality, climate change, poverty. Um, internationalism, big driving policy change. I think if he just tries to play the game of, you know, well, we'll do a bit more on health and a bit more on education, a bit more on crime, I don't think it's big enough for the moment that the country's going to be going through in the next few years. So I think that's a combination of serious leadership, yeah. which is a contrast to Johnson, because, you know, yeah. whatever you think about, he's not the most serious guy. He's got certain leadership qualities, and he's a good speaker and all that. He is captivating on the after-dinner circuit. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm not sure he's serious enough for the times and the job that he's got. Serious leadership, allied to genuinely modern, progressive policy prescriptions to these massive challenges that the world faces. Yeah. And that is what I'd be doing. be building it around that. And I I guess this
0: this whole period that we're in now is actually made all those things a lot more a lot more difficult because sure. um especially now if you if you say anything to uh probably not as much but if you say things now to like criticize the government in um in terms of how they're dealing with the response to covid um you immediately have people saying that you shouldn't play party politics you you we should be putting, you know, should we all in the same boat? Yeah, I agree. Well, and and all of you know, that I, I agree with as well, but I think the, the distinction between holding them to account and and playing party politics.
1: And to be fair, I think he has got the balance. You know, he said when he was elected, on the day he was elected leader of the Labour Party, he said, I'm going to support the government in terms of its objectives. Yeah. But where we think they should be criticised and where our questioning can make them do a better job, we're going to do that. I actually... Maybe I'm too aggressive, maybe I'm more in the kind of on-field Etochi rather than the off-field Etochi. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more, I, I kind of want to see them land a few blows. That's um,
0: because you've been you've been effectively self, self-acclaimed self leader of the opposition for the last two or three years. You've been so vocal against um, the respective Conservative governments. Uh, So I guess that probably pits more to your nature.
1: Yeah, possibly, but also I think that, you know, I'll just give you a tiny example just from the last couple of days. So, yesterday, we, it looks like we're going to be the biggest, you know, have the worst death rate of all European countries. If you go back just a few weeks to when people were dying in their hundreds every day in Italy, and you couldn't turn on the television, poor Italy, and oh my God, poor Italy. There was more sort of drama and sense of fear out of that than there was now that it's happening on our own own doorstep. And I think that a combination of having a prime minister and a government that really, you know, are pretty shameless in how they project themselves, a media that is unbelievably supine to a large extent, so, like yesterday, twelve thousand job losses at British Airways. Uh, care home death rates going through the through the through the roof. Yeah, and most of the papers today, leading on Hancock yet again talking about ramping up testing. Yeah, and I just think that. So I feel that you know. To be fair, I think Piers Morgan's been doing this as well. I mean, you know, m- more in a much more high profile way than I have because he's gone the telly every morning. Yeah, but I think that. There's a vacuum in the, I don't think anybody, I don't think even Boris Johnson's best friend would say that they've handled this perfectly. Yeah. And yet they talk as though they have. And a lot of the time the media cover them as though they have.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think you've got to call it out.
0: Yeah. What do you think of um, the Chancellor, Rishi
1: Sunak? What um, <clears throat> do I think of Rishi Sunak? I think of, I mean, I don't know him. Yeah. um i think he's i think he's a very good presenter and that does matter in modern politics yeah uh i think he does give a sense of being kind of you know on top of the brief uh got a nice manner um i think it's impossible to know given that we're in this very yeah special in, in, in some ways i think i don't know what is i don't know what's in there
0: inside yeah i think he's done a good job so far um but in some ways, which may sound a bit weird to some people, but I think now is actually a relatively easy time to be Chancellor because you kind of just have to spend, mm. you you have to spend, spend, spend. Um, you don't, you're not necessarily worried about balancing the books. If you can't, if we don't have it in our coffers, we'll, we'll borrow mm. um, and essentially, which is, again, I'm not saying it is easy, but I think in, in normal times when you have to balance, you think about spending or you think about um, pulling back in certain areas, it's a, mm. a bit more of a juggling act. Whereas now, he's um, he's pretty much just looking ways to keep the economy afloat. But, yeah, but, so, f- think, but, but so far, I think, I think, I think he's, done, he's
1: done. I agree with you. I think it's going to get harder because then what's going to happen now is that... You know, they, they, for obvious reasons, they're worried about the economy, economy falling over a cliff. And I think what they're going to do now is that they, so they want to kind of get back to some sort of normality. And that means of Pat McFadden, who's a Labour MP, he said he's, he had this really interesting concept. He said in a sense that they're, they want to put a foot on the accelerator, but the foot's going to be hovering over the brake at the same time as well. And you might have to dab on it quite a lot. Um, and I think that there'll come a point where Sunak will start to you know want to get things going opening up faster and at that point they probably will have to level with the public about you know what level of what sort of level of death amongst particularly older people is kind of acceptable for for them to get the economy going again that's
0: that's that's tough yeah that's not easy um so the same way that i asked you about your objective strategy and tactics for Keir Starmer. If you suddenly turn blue, start start bleeding blue, what would your OST be for the right honourable Boris Johnson?
1: Well, um, objective, in the immediate, get the country through this crisis and then deliver on the manifesto with a view to that delivery leading to re-election and then the strategy would be to i mean his strategy has got to be focused on getting brexit done in a way that benefits the country good luck with that one Mr. <laughs> uh how
0: how do you foresee because arguably with with corbyn there was a lot of very easy jibes very easy attacks that you could you could make towards him to discredit him and the Labour Party with someone like Keir Starmer at the helm um with probably I think most people would agree hasn't probably a much more rounded team around him like how how do you foresee the attacks that they could one could possibly throw at at Keir
1: um I think you know the the I mean, don't underestimate how, what an advantage it is to the Conservatives to have so many newspapers to prepared to do their dirty work for them. Um, the, some of the papers already think that Keir is, from his days in the DPP, that he was too kind of an, anti-press. So I think they'll kind of dig into him a fair bit. Um, my sense of Keir, he's my MP and, you know, know him well, I think he's quite a tough character. I think he's quite resilient to that sort of stuff. I think I, I don't think they'll maybe get to him in the way they think they might. So I think what they'll, a lot will depend on what p- policy positions Labour takes coming out of this. And at a certain point, the Tories will decide whether they're going to try to project him as not that much different to Corbyn in terms of his politics, or whether they're going to try and take him apart in in some other way that might be to do, you know, it's impossible to tell now because it's too early in his in leadership.
0: Yeah. For
1: example, when Tony Blair was, um, was leader in opposition, he started off, I think the first thing they tried was Bambi. <laughs> right? Well, that didn't last very long. That, but, you know, within about a year, he was Stalin. He went from Bambi to Stalin. They were trying all sorts of different attack lines of attack. Yeah. And none of them were landing. So I don't know. I'm not going to advise them anyway on that sort of thing. <laughs> They'll all be working
0: on um, your podcast. No uh, just uh, going a bit off topic, in preparation for this, I was like listening to the various Alistair Campbell things on YouTube and stuff. And I stumbled across a, a, a video clip of you working for, I think, was it the Daily Mirror? Was yeah, it- probably. Yeah, the mirror, asking Margaret Thatcher a question in like, in a press briefing or something. Oh wow! I was, then. I thought, wow, Alistair, you are old. Like, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would love. I'd love to see that. Um, yeah, yeah well, you're, you're I,
0: much fuller hair as well back then as well.
1: So that was before you were born.
0: <laughs> Way before, I've <laughs> be you know, even like, thought of.
1: Like ten years before you were born. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because I would have covered the 83 election. I was in in university. I was doing my finals when she became prime minister in 79.
0: It was a rubbish question as well, actually.
1: Why?
0: (laughs) The question that you asked her. You asked her, um, I can't even remember. It was something about (laughs) response to an article in the Financial Times. And she was like, well, I can't respond to something if I haven't read it. (laughs) Fair <laughs> enough. That you Fair like... enough, Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your public perception how do you think <laughs> because you have you have quite a tricky relationship with the press considering that you used to be one
1: yeah
0: like why do you think that's the case
1: uh, well, I think it's- It's partly the poacher turned gamekeeper thing.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: You know, I I was a journalist. But I never really considered myself to be part of the pack. I was always, I worked on the only Labour supporting paper, the Mirror. I didn't like the way the political press operated, so I I made quite a lot of enemies then. Um, I once remember we went on a trip to Washington when Reagan was president, Neil Kinnett was leader of the Labour Party. And I wrote a piece of the New Statesman about how the press operated. And some of them never spoke to me again. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I just felt it should be called out and then I think when I did the, when I sort of literally jumped fences from politics to media from media to politics I think a lot of it honestly to be absolutely frank I think a lot of it was absolute bullshit that they just made me this kind of monster figure because I was the one they saw the whole time yeah. I don't think many of them really thought it to be absolutely frank um, and, you know, I've, I've actually got pretty good relations with a lot of journalists, but I, but not many people are in any walk of life, not many people will call them out. Yeah. And I do, I don't hesitate to.
0: Which is probably the parallel that you can draw between yourself and Donald J. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys aren't that different after right? all, <laughs> eh? Yeah, I was, no. I, was watching, I was watching I was watching a documentary. I,
1: I do I do respect I do respect good I respect good journalists. I respect people who, you know, dig out dig out stuff, really lie awake at night like worrying about whether it's true or not. Yeah, you know, they're, but they're, I just feel there aren't enough people like that now. I think that and the other thing I'd say in their defence, fun enough, the other day I did a, a, podcast with a guy called Eamon Malley, who when you were aged. Three, he was coming to my briefings during the Good Friday Agreement the peace process
0: yeah.
1: and he was like a really kind of quite tough argumentative I like him but he's really kind of loved an argument loved catching you out and all that and he was saying if he lives in, in Northern Ireland." he was saying I watch these briefings at the moment every day and I'm thinking what the hell has happened to journalism these questions oh my god he says I mean you know so I don't think I'm alone in thinking that something's just gone a bit wrong.
0: Yeah.
1: And with that relationship between government and uh, maybe with us, it went too far and that they, they became, you know, at the start, one of the lines they used to run about us the whole time was we had the papers in our pocket. We didn't, it was hard every day. They were a pain in the ass every day. They were twisting stuff. And so you've, you've got to deal with that and manage that. But I think the real, the answer to your question, I think, is that I remember Andrew Ronsley who writes a column in The Observer, and he once said, this was well into our time, and I was probably beginning to start to think about leaving. And he said, listen, your problem is that we, the journalists, we find you a lot more interesting than we find most of the politicians. <laughs> That's the same with Cummings now. They find Dominic Cummings more interesting than most of the politicians. But he
0: doesn't, he doesn't give the briefings, does he?
1: No,
0: but he talks to them a lot. Okay, like behind closed doors and stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He's, he's at it
0: the whole time. Of it. Yeah. Wow. Um, because I, I was watching this documentary. I think it must have been around, I'm not too sure, maybe like, it was a, probably around like the Good Friday Agreement was what, 97? Or was that 98? No, 90, 98. 98. So, probably, I think it was around 98, 99 when, when this documentary must have uh, come out. And it was pretty much following, like, you and your team around the Downing Street, like, operations. And, like, I actually drew parallel between you and Donald Trump because you you may laugh, but you both had tactics to directly circumvent the media in terms of... So Tony had that webcast, which he would speak, and it would be uploaded online so that everyone can have a direct message from the prime minister then you also with your daily briefings to the press would publish them um to to, <laughs> to uh, on the diner street website to make sure everyone has the unedited version of what was actually said In the same way, it may be a twisted logic, but in the same way, Donald Trump goes straight to his phone and tweets what he believes (laughs) that was said to circumvent...
1: we, We might have done the same. We might have felt that social media was the way to do it. But I think, in a way, you've got to do it all. You've got to remember these briefings, right? the briefings that I did, when I was a journalist, you weren't even allowed to say that they took place. You weren't allowed to say that the Prime Minister had a spokesman. It was all this kind of mysterious... That's where this whole sources close to thing came from. Yeah. So we we were trying to open it up, to be honest, but you know, the, the, the press is, the press, somebody once said, an Australian guy, um can't remember his name now, but this guy once said that thing about the British press, he said, you've got to remember, they're the best in the world and they're the worst in the world. And it's often in the same paper on the same day. <laughs> There's somebody in that. Um,
0: I I read something recently. First of all, your 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 work rate is unbelievable. Like your your <laughs> output of things that you write, the articles that you put out is actually it's actually taken me aback how often that you 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 write. And I think you you, you definitely must be an alcohol uh, al- alcoholic <laughs> workaholic. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I'm. Well, I think um, I go through period, I go through phases when I'm a bit manic, and the, definitely the i I've kept a list of all the things I've written in the lockdown, and it is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Even I have looked at that and thought, "This is not. This is not right." I've written two
0: books in lockdown.
1: Well, I finished a novel that I was working on, and I've just finished another one about government handling of coronavirus. Wow. Uh, <laughs> And then and I, and I, I've got a publisher for that. Well, the trouble with it is I haven't decided what to do with it yet because it's, it's so fast moving. Yeah. So, I don't know, I might just do it as an audio book because I haven't decided yet.
0: Yeah. So, what year would it have been? I think it must have 2018, you came into Saracens. Yeah. It, so, 2018, you came into Saracens and you delivered a talk about mental health and you actually changed my perception of what mental health was at that time, because the way he described it, you said, "Everyone has a mental health. like you can just so everyone has mental health, and it operates very similar to the way your physical health does. Um, at Sometimes you can be sick, um, and then you need to be treated um sometimes you can be absolutely fine and it's 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 almost like a on it's on a scale and it's like it moves from time to time and I think before that I probably thought that you are either like mentally unstable or you're not is either or um you can't sometimes feel down like it's because you're either sick or you're you're normal whereas it definitely from what I've seen. It definitely doesn't work like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you know, I really enjoyed that, that time, that day actually, because do you know what was really interesting to me, and you may know more than, than I do about this, but because I do so many of these kind of talks on mental health, mental illness, I, I'm quite good at reading people now. I reckon there were a few people in that room who I could, I could just tell from the, the way they were looking, the way they were engaging, who were either already. Skeptical no not skeptical who were actually beginning to think and it came out during the question I don't even remember I won't say who but it came out during the questions when one or two was saying that you know they think maybe they need to ask for support that they've always been a bit worried about asking for it um, and I, th- I think that's you know that's one of the reasons why I, I do those talks it just shows that you know whatever people think of me I think most people think I'm kind of quite competent and quite robust and you know not scared of stuff and what have you and so to hear me talk about you know anxiety and you know catatonic depression and all the stuff that I've known I think mm-hmm. they sort of go Ooh. but then when you talk about this thing about the scale you know and I measure that every day I measure my mood every day when I wake up how am I feeling one to ten and you know it's it varies a lot and that's you know, and I, and I think it varies for all of us, but we don't... I think you've got to be careful. We shouldn't define it as mental illness just because your mood suddenly changes a bit. Yeah. But I think once you realise that your mood is... changes in mood are starting to affect your, your work and your relationships and your, you know, your, your health more generally, then... And, and I, I, for one, have felt so much better by being open about it and talking about it. And writing about it, actually. I think writing about it is important yeah.
0: as well. I think there's, been, there's definitely been a move in the last two, three years where it's become much more of a topic in which people are happy to talk about, mm. Mm. like yourself. Some of the royals have, yeah. have come out publicly on it. I think there's quite generally, I think, as a society, we're moving yeah. in the right direction. What's interesting about sport. Do you know the sport that's done it best? rugby league yeah they've
1: got um, Tony, Tony Adams yeah he's, he's been... in the football the sporting chance yeah the... but the league, the, league, the league guys actually have got um, I've done work with some of the rugby league clubs and they, they've they, they've just been much much more open about you know encouraging players to be open about it helping them when they are and it's the same in Australia rugby league in Australia much much better than rugby union why,
0: why do you think that's the case
1: I really don't know. I don't know whether, whether it's, the you know, I don't know. But I th- it's probably, when you track it back, it's probably down to a few individuals who just made the change happen in their own environment. Yeah. Um, I think with Rugby Union as well, because it's so, you know, it's still, particularly in England, maybe in Australia, a little bit sort of more middle class than working class than certainly the Rugby League. Yeah. And whether that is more kind of, you know, stiff upper lip and all that stuff, I don't know. I think rugby union is getting a lot better. And I think the other thing that's really strange is that people like, you know, athletes, top-level elite athletes, they, they won't think there's anything odd about having a sports psychologist to kind of help them maximise performance, right? But, but, but there's something still a bit weird about having somebody at the other end of the scale who helps you when you're, you know, chronically depressed. Yeah. And there's no way, by the way, there's no way in any dressing room in the world, there's no way there's not somebody in there at any one time who's struggling. No way.
0: Yeah. I think, yeah, the more, the more, I, the more I'm involved in sport, like the mental, the mental side of it, I just think is so important. Mm. Um, both from like a performance point of view, but like the way you think and even, even if you're feeling down a particular day, um, has has it impact on your on your on your physical side and your, and, mm. and your output so Definitely. like i think mental, mental health and like just the mental like side of sport is is so so important and i, and I think especially the higher up you go um, the higher up i've the higher level of rugby i've played i've signed the mental side of it much more important
1: mm. how are you finally not, not playing and not training and stuff?
0: um so far so far I've been okay to be honest I've I've got a gym in my house um so I've been training um quite a bit at home then I would go to the park to to run if I need to um and I live with I live with two other people so um, I haven't really been isolated that mm. much from like social interactions. And
1: do you do you have contact with the club every? Have you got contact with coaches every day or not? Uh,
0: I speak, I speak to the coaches relatively regularly. I speak to the, I speak to a lot of the players relatively regularly, and I just, I just try and catch up with my friends for as much as possible. Mm. I think this period is, is really depend is how is is, is how you use it because um like our sport is you're literally going bang 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 every week every week you've got a tough game every week it's like a do or die game so when is this is unheard of to get this amount of time off Mm. from the sport so i think this hopefully is a career lengthener um, that hopefully i could use to hope get better in in this block but also Mm. look to um you know, preserve my career a little bit. Have
1: you been learning French?
0: Of course, you cost that. Petit (laughs) pas. How about
1: the other, are any of the players struggling with it?
0: Uh, I think, I think, I think some are. I think some players just want to get back, get back playing. Um, Have you
1: got any of them that are just living on their own?
0: Uh, I think there'll be a few, um, a, lot, a lot of, in rugby, for some weird reason, people tend to start families a lot yeah. earlier, so a vast majority of them won't be, won't be by themselves, and the young guys who normally don't have a family, mm. they would probably go back to their parents' house and isolate, isolate there, so I'm sure there'll be a few people by themselves, but I think the vast majority will have...
1: And nobody's ill.
0: As far as I'm aware, not at my club. There's mm. been a couple. I think there's been a couple people with like symptoms who've who've mm. isolated, especially in the early, early days. But no one's been, no one's been re- really. And in, what's going to happen
1: to Saracens? In, in, I mean, if the season doesn't finish, what happens with the whole punishment
0: thing? I think that still stands. So I think I've, uh, I think pretty much Saracens uh, will, be, will be relegated this, this season. Um, we'll spend the season in the championship, come back, win the premiership. <laughs> <laughs> the story continues.: <laughs> uh, The last, the last uh, I just want to touch on the yeah. U.S. political scene um, yeah. finish like how do you assess this this situation going so we have Trump who's the incumbent who's like if you think Boris is off the scale like Trump is way off the scale I actually think he's hilarious to be honest he is a funny man like I watched a I watched a like a docuseries about him and his life and Honestly, he should be on Saturday Night Live. I'm sure he's done whatever. Well,
1: that's fine, that's fine, but don't be the president. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't be the president. No, so, I, think he's, I think he's I think he's awful. But I th- you know he could win. He could win. So uh, you know, uh, Biden's old and Yeah. So
0: how would you go about again, you're putting your director of communications hat on your OST. OST your OST. Um your OST for Joe Biden to tackle Donald Trump.
1: The objective has got to be to win. I, I think he's a very, very hard opponent because he doesn't he doesn't play by the normal rules. I think his I think his strategy has got to be to offer a really positive vision of the future. That's why I think it would be better if they got somebody younger. But I think it's about offering a positive vision of the future that isn't just defined by Donald Trump. I think if he plays if I think if he defines his strategy as just, you know, I'm it's the person, Trump. yeah. I don't think that works. I think that helps Trump.
0: What would your tactics be?
1: Um, actually, I think on the tactics, Biden is pretty good. I've noticed some of his kind of, some of the little films he's been putting out and stuff like that. I mean, the tactics flow from the strategy, so in a way, you'd probably, you, you need people who are going to take Trump apart for you. So that's kind of, that's one big plank of it and then i think it would be elaborate on that
0: do you know in the I mean, like dirty in side of american yeah? politics do you mean like the dirty side of american politics
1: the more aggressive and you know some of these packs that they some of the some of the sort of quasi just slightly detached organizations that they're allowed yeah. to use yeah um you know and i think the whole celebrity thing's overblown um by the way one of the funniest things i've seen somebody in australia made this video with nurses and doctors and uh, people who had lost their loved ones and all do this this film it's just at the end they just go thank you celebrities that is drawing attention to these celebrities are putting out these ridiculous videos how hard it all is from you know Mm but we're all in this together um but I think, you know, you could use third parties to do that kind of stuff. I think, I think Biden's, look, he's a rough, tough, he'll look after himself, I think, against yeah. Trump, but I think he's got to be giving a, he's got to be giving a sense of a better future, that, and, and of America being, you know, better than this kind of thing. I mean, do you know who would be the perfect candidate for this right now? Who? Is Obama from his first campaign.
0: 2008. Yeah, he's he's an impressive individual.
1: Made for it. Made for it. Um,
0: awesome. Cool Last question. Is you another question? Go on then. Last one. Yeah. Uh, what does success in life look for you?
1: I don't I don't know how to answer that. See, I don't
0: Or what does winning in life look for you?
1: If that's a I think winning, I think there's two things I said about winning. Winning on the way. So if I look back on things that I think I've been part of helping to win, obviously the election victories and some of the changes that we made, the Good Friday Agreement and all sorts of other things, I can look back and think, you know, they were big wins, as it were. Um, But I don't... I wrote a a little book a few years ago called The Happy Depressive, and I I said this thing, which I still... I, I believe this, is that... I think sometimes we look for, we think that happiness is about having fun and being good in the moment. And I think it's more about, I feel this more and more as I get older, I'm in my 60s now, is, is actually that happiness for me is, is what, you, as you kind of start to near the end of your life, you start to look back and think, you know, have I done everything that I could? Could I have done more of this? Is there still time to do more? I still want to do... You know, I've I've just popped in the post this um my last novel, which is about football and the IRA in the 1970s. And I've got a few people interested in making it into a film. And it like I'm you know, I'm really excited about that because I've never done that before. Yeah. So I like to do things that I do well, but I think I think the other thing is, is you know, I think this coronavirus thing is making a lot of people think in these terms is that I think ultimately you do start to think about your own mortality, and you think about well, who do you want to be with when you? And I'm thinking about these people at the moment. You're dying, and they've got no family there at all. I mean, it's just yeah, tough. Um, so who are the people that you, that really, really matter to you? And you know, and I think in most of us, I mean, I know hundreds and thousands of people, but there's not that many people that you get really, really close to. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think, you know, one of my successes in life is the fact that. I'm, after 40 years, I'm still with Fiona, and we've had some pretty yeah, That's a big achievement.
0: Challenge. That's not easy.
1: Yeah, but we're together, and we've got three kids who are, you know, have all had their struggles but are doing pretty well. um I think success is the fact that, you know, even though I don't have power in the way that I was attached to power before, and I you know, Boris Johnson's the prime minister, Keir Starmer's the leader of the Labour Party, Trump's the president, I've got, you know, negligible influence on any of them. But at the same time, because of what I've done in the past, I still can get heard, I can promote ideas, I can get involved in campaigns. So, you know, I would, and it's funny, you talked about how you said that you'd change the way you thought about mental health as a result of that, me doing that talk at Saracens. That's one of the goals I've set for the rest of my life is actually that by the time I die, nobody really sees that difference anymore. We just have health. We have health, and that means we have mental health and we have physical health, and it's all health. And, you know, the fact that, you know, you get depression has got no more or less stigma attached to it than the fact that you break your leg or you have asthma. Yeah. Um, So that would be success. So I don't think... I guess that's a long-winded way of saying is that you don't. One of the ways you'll find this when you stop playing, right? When you stop playing, you know, assuming your career carries on as the way that it is now, and you end up having five million caps and captain England more than anybody else, and you know, who knows, the Lions might even win a tour somewhere. You have all that, and at the end of it, you'll go unless you go on to be, say, coach of England or something. Whatever you do with the rest of your life, you're going to be defined as. Mario Toji, former England rugby international.
0: Not if I'm Prime Minister of the UK or President of Nigeria.
1: You go into politics, but I'm saying say you've, <laughs> you've got to do something very, very special to get over that. Yeah. So I'm about to do a TV interview about the whole coronavirus, right? Guaranteed. I'm not complaining. It's just a fact. I will be introduced as Tony Blair's former director of communication. Fact. Yeah. Right. Now that doesn't mean. That that's all that I have to say, but it means that's how I'm defined.
0: Yeah.
1: And I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't define success or failure as anything that you can actually summarise and sum up in your own mind until you're, you're on your last legs. Otherwise, you just give up. Yeah.
0: So is, the this the first time you,
1: is this the first time you said publicly you're going to be Prime Minister? I thought you, <laughs> you wanted to I be, joke, be President I of guess. Ghana.
0: Oh, definitely not Ghana. I'm Nigerian. I'm in Nigeria. <laughs> I think, sorry,
1: I'm thinking, would you to be
0: president of Nigeria? I, th- I actually think it'll be easier to become prime minister of the UK than president of Nigeria. Alistair, thank you very much. Pleasure. See
1: you soon. Yeah. yeah.